Well, good afternoon, everybody, again. Um, let me start by introducing the panel. My name's Nicholas Barr. I've been teaching economics here for about a million years, including the economics of the welfare state. Um, professor Nicola Lacey is School Professor of Law, Gender and Social Policy, which seems to cover pretty comprehensively <laughs> what we've just been um, watching. Kathleen Hennehan is a research and policy analyst at the Resolution Foundation and did her PhD in the government department here. And Lord Stuart Wood of Anfield uh, is a Labour member of the House of Lords, uh, was very much involved in advising Gordon Brown. He and I met each other uh, discussing student loans and higher education finance and... Uh, which is all sorted now. Yeah. <laughs> if, it was left, if it was left to Stuart and me, it would all be sorted. And, 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 and is also an academic at uh, the Blavatnik School at Oxford. Um, we've seen a video with five elements, one for each of Beveridge's five giants. Poverty to be tackled, the suggestion is, by universal basic income, idleness to be tackled via personal work accounts that would allow people to invest in their human capital, squalor to be addressed through cooperative housing, disease to be tackled through a way of financing long-term care where the costs are shared between the individual and the taxpayer, and ignorance uh, to be uh, tackled in particular through digital literacy. So we've had a presentation on each of those five. The criteria that the students were asked to pay particular attention to were three criteria that Beveridge set out, supporting individual security but without stifling individual responsibility. Um, seeking to avoid traps uh, introduced by targeting, including labour supply disincentives and the stigma that people feel from um, income-tested benefits, and that each of the elements should be part of a comprehensive strategy. So it wasn't just a bunch of policies. It was a series of mutually reinforcing elements. And we need to discuss the five proposals in terms of Beveridge's three criteria, but there's two additional ones given that we're in the 21st century. One is gender, which Beveridge didn't really address. The other is the Beveridge report was written at a time when society, technology, social structure were much simpler than now. What policies today also need to take account of is to accommodate the huge diversity of an fluidity of individual and household experiences. Lifestyles and life courses vary much more today than was the case uh, when the Beveridge Report was published. So what we'd like to do is to discuss each of the five in order, um, to discipline ourselves to allow time at the end so that you guys can get back at us <laughs> with uh, anything where we've said things that... Uh, you, vi you violently disagree with. Well, I won't say anything you disagree with. Uh, feel free to disagree with the panel. Um, so, um, okay, universal basic income. Um, 
who wants to have a crack at that first? Oh, I'll, um, I'll say something. First, <laughs> first I want to say that there were incredibly impressive videos, so congratulations to everyone who took part in them. Um, so, my, I mean, from a beverage point of view, UBI has lots to recommend it, right? It's beverage, beverage was very, very worried about means testing, creating poverty traps. UBI obviously is a, some kind of response to that problem. Um, there are positive externalities, as, the, as whoever made the video uh, pointed out. Um, so my worry about UBI, just very briefly, I have two worries about it. Um, one is from bitter experience working with Gordon Brown. <laughs> Quite a lot of bitter experiences, uh, in, in, especially after the crash. Um, but uh, Julian Legrand mentioned, I think, the Child Trust Fund in the course of the video. So the Child Trust Fund, the baby bond and the sort of package of things around that, which was indeed a form of UBI, was consistently the least popular welfare policy introduced by the new Labour government, by a country mile. And why was that? Because it was considered to be giving money to you know, the royal family kids as much as to the poorest kids, and it was considered to be unfair. And whether you think it's fair or not, politically, when tough times hit, it proved to be very, very politically unstable. The coalitions to support it evaporated very quickly. So that's a rather practical political concern, I guess, from my background. The other one is, and you might find this even more sort of impressionistic, but I find, present company accepted, that the wrong people are the backers of the UBI. <laughs> it's the wrong people who are getting excited about it. It's people who are obsessed with Silicon Valley. It's tech heads who I suspect see a world in which massive inequalities of, of earnings might emerge with the digital revolution 0.3.0, 4.0 down the line. And they want to contract out the task of poverty protection to the state while inequality rages ahead. A sort of Rawlsian deal, like a sort of rather black market Rawlsian deal, if you like. Uh, and I find that slightly worrying. I find, I find it the evangelists for UBI in the private sector tend to be people in the sectors that are precisely going to race ahead of the median and the bottom 20%. And I think it's a sort of salving the conscience of the tech sector policy too often. Now, that isn't a good enough reason to say no to it, but that's my worry about it. Um, yeah, I suppose I was thinking about it. Um, Richard Nixon was, I believe, an early proponent of UBI, so maybe a sort of you know, um, predecessor of some of these Silicon Valley giants um, proposing it. That said, I think there's, you know, there's a lot going for it, and I think one of the things that I quite like about it that was um, talked about in the video is that it really does have a positive impact in terms of, in terms of gender, or at least it can. Mm. So I think that's, um, that's quite interesting. It's something that I don't think... I always ever, you know, I, I, I really thought about thinking about the concept of UBI. Um, so that's quite good. Um, in terms of actually funding UBI, I think that's probably where it, it gets a little bit tricky. I think I might have missed the, the three sources. I think there was um, sovereign, sovereign funds, um, welfare savings, and then it was something about progressive income tax, yeah. which is fine. I wonder if maybe tax on capital would be a fairer way of, of thinking about that. Um, but otherwise, I think, I think it is, you know, it, a really interesting policy, but I do sort of echo some of Stuart's worries about the fact that, like, it, it doesn't necessarily reduce inequality. It just sort of protects those um, at the bottom. At, uh, I'd like to echo the point about gender equality. I mean, uh, we had a gender commission on gender inequality in power here at LSE a couple of years ago, and one of the 
interesting things that came out of the work the economists in that commission did was to show that um, one of the most successful uh, policies of the new Labour government in terms of gender equality was actually the minimum wage, a, a, a policy that was not announced in gender terms. So I think the basic income is, is attractive from that point of view, potentially. But I think the other point I would make about it, which in a sense builds on this question of who, who's going to support it and why, is that like many of the policies, and it was a fantastic presentation, I really add my congratulations to what you managed to put together. It was terrific. Um, but one of the things that is, makes social policy so difficult and why the, the constraint that you had to respect of you know, a comprehensive vision rather than just separate policies is they, they tend to imply other things that aren't necessarily part of the policy, like the political will to change the structure of the tax system in certain ways. And I think that's probably something we're going to have to come back to in other areas. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the reasons why UBI is so popular is the, the right wing love it because they see that if you give people cash, you can dismantle the welfare state, and the left love it because they see the basic income as a right of citizenship. So you can see why it's politically popular everywhere. The gender equality point is enormously important. I've long been an advocate of non-contributory pensions, and there's evidence from South Africa that uh, it's mainly elderly women who get those pensions and it's poverty relief by grandma and it, it works very well. The key thing, the difficult bit that you've heard, is how you pay for it. Partly the economics of it, partly the political will. So just to park that as something we might want to come back to, I'm conscious that we shouldn't be crowding out um, the other presentations. Um, we should perhaps move on to uh, personal work accounts, the uh, antidote <laughs> to idleness. Mm -hmm. um, Kathleen. Sure. Um, so I thought this was a, a really interesting proposal, um, not least because it's something, it's an idea that we bat around at my work um, quite a bit. And I think, you know, on a, on a practical level, there is quite a bit of scarring um, in this country when something called individual learning accounts um, was introduced back in the 2000s, and it, it wasn't very well regulated, um, and was, you know, to, to put it gently, quite, quite a bit of fraud, um, and quite a bit of, of, of learners who really could have benefited from this losing out. And so I think, I think without a really strong um, regulatory underpinning with that, pe people are a little bit nervous. Um, that said, I, you know, that, that's not a reason to, to discount it, um, but I'm also sort of curious about who takes it up. I think quite often with, with some of these policies, it does tend to be people who are already familiar with the education system. Many times it's people who are already graduates who tend to take these up because they're, they're comfortable with the world of work. So anything that, that promotes this has to be sort of underpinned um, um, by careers advice and by encouragement, but also in a way that doesn't you know, promote targeting. So, so it, it's a really difficult um, one to crack, but I think, you know, it's, it's an interesting policy that definitely you know, bears scrutiny. Yeah, I, I echo all that. I mean, there was, a, there was a policy, a forerunner of the ILA's individual learning accounts called the University for Industry, which had the distinction of neither being a university nor mm. for industry. <laughs> it was essentially a sort of idea about giving some sort of in-kind credits to people that they could use for upskilling. But I, too, am worried about this. I mean, in, in the film, um, again, it was an ex excellent film, but whoever uh, made it mentioned the insider-outsider problem in passing. And I think there's a kind of double insider-outsider problem. Uh, the, the, 
the issue, the issue is that the allowance only goes to people in work, and the, the individual learning accounts in the, in the noughties were congruent with a Department of Work and Pensions, the Social Security Department in the UK, orthodoxy, which, was, which I think was very, very problematic, uh, which was get into work. It doesn't matter how rubbish the work is. Once you get into work, even the worst paid work, then you can start climbing the skill ladder. So it was a sort of, it was an incentive to people to get into some kind of employment and then use these credits to upskill. Turns out our labour market is not very good at that ladder climbing bit. If you're in the bottom 40%, of course, um, it's more like a revolving door between bad work and no work. Uh, but that was the theory behind it. But that's. In a way, that reveals the inside-or-outsider problem. It's better to be in work because then you have access to these credits that you wouldn't be outside work. But then there's a second inside-or-outsider problem that Kathleen raised, which is certain people inside work tend to use these credits in a well-informed way, and that correlates with higher skills and better jobs. So you get a kind of double-barrier problem. Now, that's not a deal-breaker for the idea, but it's just, along with fraud, a really important problem you need to anticipate in thinking about this. And really very much following on from those two Contributions. I, I think this is another area in which the, there's a strong hookup with other provisions. So this is only going to work even if you can get over the insider-outsider problems which have been mentioned. There's, there is a quality of infrastructure problem, isn't there? There's a question of what what is already available in the education and training system. And this, I'm, I'm just going to break the rules here, this also has to do with the very interesting ideas or applies to the very interesting ideas on digital, uh, combating digital inequalities. Um, there is a, a supplementary issue that has to be tackled about how we, we ensure that the infrastructure that would make this policy meaningful is itself in place. I mean, what this puts its finger right on is a problem that is finally, finally being recognised, namely... I'm exaggerating only slightly, Britain has been obsessed with higher education and has ignored the rest of tertiary education. And there is finally a drive to think about all of tertiary education holistically. And part of that has been the idea of having, if you like, a universal entitlement that could be used to finance building up human capital in further education, in higher education, through apprenticeships in any way in any part of tertiary education and over any different time scale. So this is hitting an important nail on the head. Finance is part of it, but then we've heard there is a demand problem. Will some people choose well? And we know some people will choose better than others. And there's a supply problem. Will, will, will there be rip-off artists as there were with individual learning accounts? So I think right topic but be interesting to discuss how you actually make the, the, the great idea work in practice. Anyone else want to add anything on this before we... Well, if you crack it, please let me know, because I've got a paper coming out soon. <laughs> 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 I was going to say, it's not just get to know the causes of things, but mm -hmm. get to work out how to make things work in practice. Um, squalor, cooperative housing. The, the bit that I scribbled down was nothing planned in advance, which uh, I'd be fascinated to, to learn more about. I, 
Well, should I just say something generally? I, I was very uh, um, attracted by this as, as one component in dealing with squalor. I think that we need, again, to think about this in the context of a really major dynamic which is much stronger now than it was for all sorts of reasons in Beveridge's time uh, towards sort of residential polarisation. And it's much worse in some countries than others. We know that it's become much worse in Britain over the last years. My, my, I, I'm, by the way, way the least qualified person on the panel because I'm essentially a criminal justice scholar and a gender <laughs> scholar. And I'm, as a criminal justice scholar, I'm really, really concerned about this residential uh, polarisation issue because um, it, it's hugely associated with build-ups and in really intractable disadvantage, but it's also really associated with violence. And so it, it brings with it all sorts of further problems that aren't obviously problems about squalor or even about housing. So I think I, you really persuaded me that cooperative housing was one part of the solution to this, but I think it would have to be part of a, a more general uh, housing policy and a policy for planning and local taxes. I mean, I find that attractive too, I, but it, it felt to me like a policy that had two targets in mind which weren't necessarily the same. One is affordability and one is squalor. Uh, and I was really interested, it's the second part of the film, talking about how people getting together into a, a, a neighbourhood that perhaps isn't the most salubrious neighbourhood, but then establishing something which, which has a sort of uplift on values in neighbouring properties. If, if that's what it's doing, then there's lots of fantastic, or not very fantastic parts of the UK where that sort of model would be really interesting to try. But its primary attraction seems to be more about affordability. And I guess my question about it is, what, is, is there a very limited, although definable, but a limited target audience for the sort of people, probably younger, probably liberal, who want to live in the sort of set of, was it Les Grands Voisins, was that what it's called? Mm -hmm. uh, who want to live in that sort of, what about more conservative rural areas? Is there a possibility, are the sites available, are the, are the kind of, is, is there a kind of cultural complement that you need in order to get a crucial group of people together? And probably is it therefore more for a, you know, Prenzlauerberg in Berlin, well that's probably 20 years ago now, isn't it? I'm, <laughs> showing, my, I'm showing how dated that, whatever it's called, Marzan now, right? Or, or you know, Peckham, or what, are, there, are there bits of bits of big cities where this works, but only there, or is it a more general solution? That's the question I think I had. Uh, yeah, I think this one really put a smile on my face, and I think the thing that I also struck me was the fact of how responsive it is. Um, and it's also, you know, responsive and, you know, immensely... Um, uh, supportive of individual security, so you, you're, you are hitting one critical element there. Um, but yeah, I think there is an element um, of whether or not this is sort of exclusive to a particular social group, whether it could lead into targeting. Um, and I guess, whilst I really love it, I, I would love to hear about how it's sort of part of a, a broader strategy. Um, I mean, the thought that crossed my mind was listening to the fluent French was could this work in Britain <laughs> if you've ever been very wicked in a previous life you'll have had to learn about English planning law <laughs> don't go there but if you combine English planning law with nimbyism you've got a big problem and if you then add something that concerns me if you regulate the quality of housing for all the right reasons it can end up being counterproductive because the sort of thing that we were seeing there was not top quality. 
it wasn't meant to be top quality, it was meant to be serviceable. And how this would be permitted under clunky English planning regulations is, again, a practical problem. It's not an attack on the idea, but, you know, you'd need to get some pretty savvy planning expert sort of gamekeeper turned poacher to make it work, I think. Mm. Disease, dementia tax. I shall, I shall rein myself in on this one. <laughs> I, doubt, I doubt that very much. Who wants to have a go on this? Uh, okay, I'll start. Um, I mean, I, I, personally, this is the biggest challenge we face in our country. So I think this is absolutely the right thing to get, to look at. And I too, I mean, I was, I'm a Labour politician, so I. I viewed the Tory implosion over this policy in the election with uh, some delight, right? But, um, but at least they were trying to address the, the big problem with a, with a bold proposal. It backfired politically, but it's... Uh, so, but I do worry about this. I, I, I don't, here's, my cha- here's my issue with it. I don't understand why we approach this in terms of current pensioners paying through their current property rather than insurance principle where everyone pays in advance of knowing whether they're going to be the kind of people who end up needing long-term care with a £2 million house on the books. Then there's the familiar problem. What about Why are we discriminating against people who have certain types of illness in their old age, like dementia, versus quick heart attacks? Um, then there's the behavioural gaming problem, which is, you know, is it going to induce people to dispose of their properties as they get older? Maybe you think that's a good idea, actually. Might, there's all sorts of reasons to think that disposing of property before you die is a good idea for other kinds of equalities we care about. But there's all sorts of gaming behavioural problems with it. And then lastly, if you, if you really think that, as I think we all do, that housing, particularly in the UK, with our kind of crazy housing market, where there are these very valuable assets which are not being tapped for these kinds of uh, needs, what's wrong with inheritance tax as a way of dealing with it? Inheritance tax is, a, is, is on the stocks already. Uh, it's... In principle, it works pretty well. You can change the rates, you can change the regulations about when it applies. But there it is. It's a wealth tax on death, which uh, could create serious amounts of money for investment in precisely this without the selective problems that I think the dementia tax proposal has. I think that that's another, yet another area in which the interface between the, the, what look like feasible and attractive policies and the feasibility of different kinds of tax policy politically become so absolutely central to this debate, don't they? Because I suppose my reaction to the dementia tax, speaking as somebody who has responsibility for somebody with dementia, um, like probably many people in this audience, was that I, I thought it was unfair in many ways for all the reasons that Stuart has mentioned very clearly. But on the other hand, I'd probably rather have that than not enough money going into social care. And, um, but it, it just seems so much less efficient than having a sensible seri- basis for, for, ta- for doing this through taxation, uh, just as you know, a proper system of property taxes looks to me like a better way of dealing with housing problems. Um, so I think that you know, this, is a, this, and this is something that, again, to go back to a point that, that Nick uh, popped in uh, quietly, but a major, major point here is... is the different conditions for uh, moving, as it were, a beverage agenda forward in different, even just looking at European countries, the different willingness to, in, you know, to 
tax to invest in these socially productive ways, just absolutely striking in Europe. Um, I think, you know, this is always a really interesting policy area. Um, the think tank that I work at runs something called the Intergenerational Commission, um, in which we find on every single policy area, surprise, surprise, um, you know, younger people in Generation X and, of course, millennials, um, fair poorly relative to baby boomers um, in terms of what you put into the welfare state versus what you get out, in terms of income growth over one's lifetime, in terms of housing, etc. So I think, you know, on the one hand, I can see some of the motivation behind this proposal, but I think there's a really theoretical question here, which, you know, um, I think was quite nicely elaborated here, is what you... Is that what is? Is that how we should fund social insurance? And also, I have just a practical question about the sustainability of it. Um, you know, it's fine. We might be able to have, you know, enough receipt from housing wealth today mm. um, to fund it. Um, but home ownership rates are massively unequal in this country, and they're falling for younger generations. So I just don't really understand the sustainability of it. Um, but you know, good on you know. Get on the proposal for at least trying to tackle this issue. I just think maybe it's, you know, try again and fund it through, you know, a proper social insurance system. I shall fudge my self-denying ordinance by saying something that I'm going to claim is a segue into digital literacy, and that is the issue of financial literacy. Because some people need long-term care, some don't. Nobody knows in advance. This is crying out to be something for which people can buy insurance. Private insurance won't work for technical reasons. Social insurance could do it. But the financial literacy bit, people don't understand probabilities. They don't understand insurance. And that's what makes it politically difficult. In Germany, I mean, Nikki was saying, different attitudes in different European countries. In Germany, as I understand it, there is an additional 1.95% added to uh, workers' social security contributions that pays for long-term care. It seems to me that this is something that um, it would be nice to think about here. But I think that there is an insurance issue, there is a financial literacy issue, and financial literacy, I think, should be bracketed in with digital literacy. So let us move on to ignorance and how to address it, financial, <laughs> digital, and other um, Solutions. Um, <laughs> okay. No, it's fine. Um, no, I thought this was a, a really interesting proposal. Um, one of the things I, I quite liked for, about it was that, you know, it appeared to be based in schools, which is really, really helpful. And I also think that's quite positive um, from a gender lens because you're getting everyone um, into dig digital literacy and I assume coding, etc. And I think we're already, you know, starting to see policymakers um, advocate this. So, yeah, I, I thought it was really good, and I'm really struggling now on the spot to come up with mm -hmm. a really strong uh, question or critique for you. But, um, but give me a minute. <laughs> we'll, we'll come to Q and A in a minute. Yeah. I'll just add that um, I, I like this proposal as well, but it seems to me that the people who probably have the greatest need for digital special needs education are the, the older people like me. Um, and I think, I guess, that if I was really going for my priorities about education, it would be early schooling of a very general kind, including digital 
but just thinking about basic education because there's so much evidence, as I understand it, that that is what makes a real difference in terms of equality, in terms of the life chances of, of children from different backgrounds. My experience of my kids is, is that my 16-year-old, who's a sort of late convert to this agenda at school, is that he says that the best kids in his class are streets ahead of the teachers. Hmm. Um, and I guess as part of the nature of the issue, it doesn't, it doesn't lend itself to a traditional pedagogical approach where the teachers have the skills and the yeah. students are learning up to a limit. Um, so, but that isn't, that's not, I think this is obviously a massively important area, a big priority. I guess I had more of a slightly philosophical question about this, which I've been thinking about before, which is, are digital skills a subject, or are, I think actually the professor from the from Institute of Education made this point, are they a thing, uh, like a subject in itself, or are they a technique that you apply to every other subject and to the process of learning in a lifelong way and all that? And I, I, I'm not as familiar with the, with the pedagogy of this as I probably should be, but it strikes me intuitively it's more the second than the first, in which case, it's not a matter of getting the teachers. It's a, mat- it's a much more fundamental overall of the way we deliver education in general, as Nikki says, from, from, from kindergarten upwards. And I suspect, therefore, this is not just about finding curriculum time for a new set of skills. It's actually a much more fundamental, fundamental re-engineering of the way we do education. So it's a bigger, a bigger revolution than we might think. But obviously, it's, with all the evidence of the relationship between this and future inequalities, this is clearly an important thing from a beverage point of view. I mean, it's, it's, it's a huge revolution because when our grandchildren were taught to read, they were pretty much taught the same things that I was taught when I was taught to read, and ditto with, with arithmetic. I mean, the teaching methods might have changed a bit. It was basically the same skill. Digital technology is changing so fast. I asked our older grandchild, a digital native, I said, as a matter of interest, I said, do you know what a modem is? No, he said, because modems had come and gone before he got stuck into his iPad. So it changes so fast that how teachers can... I mean, they can't keep up, and that makes it pedagogically... A f- no, no, nobody knows. <laughs> <laughs> you do, Bob, because you're, you're old, so that's OK. I never knew. <laughs> that's true, I never knew. I was going to say, you come and see us afterwards. It's <laughs> got one in his office, a big one. Like this. <laughs> so basically, it's a moving target in a way that literacy and numeracy aren't. And just how one handles that, uh, very difficult. So, over to you. Agreements, disagreements. Um, I have a feeling we're not going to be able to take all the questions. Please, would you wait for the microphone for the podcast? Um, so, one there. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, good afternoon. Um, my name is Michael Johnson. I'm probably um, off the spectrum in terms of most of the people in this audience, in terms of politics. But I think um, the politicians have got a lot to blame. And if I make two observations, then, then a question. Um, long-term care um, was essentially sabotaged by politicians. We had the Dilnot proposals, which essentially produced the idea of a cap on your contribution. We then had the Conservative Manifesto proposal, which introduced the idea of a floor. And politicians from both sides just attacked one another. And unless you can sort that out, I don't think you're going to advance the, 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 the issue. Um, let me cut straight to the question. How do you reconcile um, the advance of big data and digital capabilities with the underlying concepts of risk pooling or risk sharing? 
Because it seems to me, I, I spent 30 years as a, a rather wicked investment banker, and it seems to me that the insurance principles that we observe in the city are actually collapsing because big data enables you to opt out and so on. So I'm curious about how the implications for this as we go forwards. And just a very quick comment about Social Security. You know, we have national insurance, NICS, totally unfit for purpose, now unable to fund the state pension. I believe the state pension should be scrapped. That's a different subject, um, but I'm happy to take you on about it. <laughs> let's let's take you. two or three questions. Um, one at the back there. What was this question Hi, thank you. My name is Anastasis Papandreou. I'd like to um, focus a bit on the UBI. I've watched yesterday the entire session, day, uh, day in the morning and the afternoon as well. The UBI was presented as a means of alleviating poverty. Poverty, I'm sorry. Now, the way I understand it, if you want to have a welfare, welfare state, welfare basically means a situation that allows, that facilitates that everyone can be their maximum and offer their maximum, regardless of where they come from, background, education, etc. So if you want to replace that with the UBI, then eventually the UBI should, be, should allow you to live in a certain quality, be able to educate yourself, etc. Yesterday it was only addressed as lifting poverty. I did not see any uh, depiction of amount. How much will that be? How much will it cost us? Well, what will be the finance behind it? And what will ensure that in the future it will stay at a level that will keep you, allow, keep you able to live, etc.? I did not see this. And my question is to the point of housing market. It's a really speculative market. It often it involves mortgages. So if you have such a supply, Everyone can, let's say, spare 5000 a year to housing, for example. Wouldn't the banks just take this on a very much longer mortgage? So th this is the question. How do we keep this? Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Now, uh, being an architect, uh, you mentioned sorry, the housing. I'm, I'm, okay, we, fine. We, <laughs> um, let me see. Okay, right at the back there. Yeah, I just... Is this working? Cool. Uh, uh, I just want to ask about this... Um, uh, care insurance thing um, that you mentioned to the panel. Um, I think someone mentioned something like 1.5% of uh, income could be put aside and then go towards care costs. I was thinking that would be a great idea if we'd had it for like 30 or 40 years. But I just wonder whether that would work with um, the labour market going, you know, that we're going to have in the future if that ends up being much more based around uh, part-time work or short-term work or insecure work, people moving in and out of work, is that actually, you know, it just strikes me that there's a risk that there's going to be an awful lot of people where the 1.5% on their income isn't going to amount to anything near their actual care needs. Um, one more here and then we'll take around from the panel. Hello, um, my name is Christopher and I just wanted to expand upon the point on dig digital, digital education and the vagueness which was coming out from the discussion which the panel had. Um, I sort of identified three problems. The first one is how do you address redundancy? For example, if you try to teach children a programming language, programming languages change every few months. How would you, first of all, address redundancy? Second of all, 
Um, if instead of teaching programming languages, you want to teach an intuition about what computers do, how, do, how does internet work, and so on and so forth, how to defend yourself against increasing security risks of computers, okay, fine. Those are, but those are intuitive concepts. How would you teach teachers to teach intuition to students? Yeah. And, and I want to say that this, I'm, this is a point which I'm quite pessimistic about, because if you look at mathematics, teach education around the world where it's concentrated more on pragmatical, on the arithmetic rather than intuition. How can we show that we won't, we'll get it right this time for computers? And lastly, <laughs> I want to ask about, um, actually, sorry, I forgot about my last one, but let's just address those two first. Thank you. <laughs> right, I was going to say, so, um, big data and risk pooling. Big data kills insurance is the proposition. Uh, you're probably the best person to yeah. talk about this, but I, I, mean, I know there's a, there's a, who was who asked the question? Sorry, I'm sorry, yes. Yeah. I mean, it's a really good point, and I know there's a lot of research going on. I have, I have good friends at Oxford, actually, who are, who are medics, who are worried about the way in which insurance markets get destroyed by the ease with which extra information can be made available, and you can't create the market. And there's arguments now that you should limit the amount of information. For example, some very treatable cancers, for example, that you may not want information on early because it could, it could harm your ability to get insurance. It seems we're in a crazy situation where the, where the, the structure of the market is being threatened by the, the amount of information available. I think you're absolutely right. And I think what's interesting is one of the things about beverage, taking a step back on beverage. So compared to the beverage world that he, that he sort of got set rolling with the report... Our welfare state has undergone quite an interesting transformation. The means-testing element has gone up dramatically. The universal element has come down dramatically. And the insurance element, I think, has come down quite dramatically as well. We have very little by way of genuine insurance in, our wealth, in the British welfare state now. And I think a lot of, both on the left and right, there's a lot of interest in recreating the insurance principple in some way. Uh, I'm certainly very interested. I think it has all sorts of good properties uh, it matches the intuition that you know if you if you put something in, it's okay to take something out. It solves actuarial problems. It's a, as Nick said earlier on about a long-term care. It's a, in theory at least a robust way of of dealing with a lot of the new problems that are emerging. But as the gentleman at the back said, um, the pattern of work means that it's going to be very difficult to get that regular contributions coming in if if the pat if if work is going to be more interrupted, more casualised, a more mixture of traditional jobs and self-employed, periods of non-working interspersed with periods of regular work. That's going to make the insurance challenge of gathering the income more difficult, but not impossible. It's just, it's just something that we're going to have to wrestle with as a, as a, new, a new element. Nick, I think it disagrees. No, no. Having been the grumpy guts, let me now come in with some cheerful news. You can ins Private insurance works where something may happen or may not. It can insure against risk. It can't insure against a certainty. If genetic testing shows you're very, very likely to develop a cancer, the actuarial model can't handle it. Mm. Compulsory membership, everybody in the same risk pool, social insurance can handle it, which strengthens the case for social insurance. On the gig economy point, I learned this fascinating statistic at a conference the other day. In Tanzania, 10% of the economy is in the formal sector. 50% of GDP is um, digital uh, monetary transfer. So I think technology is actually going to help with collecting contributions uh, from much more fluid labour market relations. Hope is in sight. 
UBI, do you, Nikki, do you, do you want to...? Uh, I have something to say on digital education. Yeah. I mean, um, so I would need to say, as a teacher, I find, find myself very challenged and intrigued by the question about how to teach intuition, because it's something that... It, it's a question that, that is, applies way beyond digital education. But on the, the, the redundancy problem, which is obviously a, a major issue, but it does seem to me that, in principle, and I don't know enough about this this area to have a good answer to your very good question. But it seems to me that the the basic principle has got to be giving people the highest level of education and transferable skills that we can because it's through those skills that people are able to learn new things through the life course and that is what people really increasingly need. Um, I'm conscious we haven't really talked about how to finance um, Mm. UBI and the fact that it's, it's not just about alleviating poverty. Um, <laughs> and I'm really uh, at a bit of a loss. Um, I'm wondering if we... Could we... Microphone. Thank you. The World Bank has just a study on, on how much it would cost, and it has estimated budget-neutral financing. In advanced countries, if you want to give... Uh, a basic income that's worth 25% of median income, it would cost you about 6.5% of GDP in an advanced economy and about 3.75% in a developing country. So it is conceivable that you can finance if it's some of the other cash benefits can be uh, substituted. Though I th- this was thinking of UBI at a poverty relief level rather than a... 25% of median income. Mm. Okay. There's just just one quick point. I'm really struck by this thing in the UBI debate, though, which is that it's... The UBI debate arises out of the AI debate, right? Not just, but that's one of the prime impetuses behind it. That AI is going to make people redundant. We can be... Now, you know, Richard Lau was here. He'd say, oh, I've seen this argument again and again over the years and all this, but let's put that to one side. So it's, it's a worry about people being losing their jobs and therefore losing their income. And the UBI is an income solution, but it's not a solution to the idleness problem, as to, to use the term, I mean, to use a slightly pejorative term that Beveridge, that Beveridge put out there. Like, what are people going to do? It's an income solution, but it's not an activity solution. And I, now, it could be that the idea is it's income and people can then choose a range of activities and invest. That could be... But, we know from revealed behaviour that is not the way a lot of people work. So we, the, the que- I think the idea that the state's duty is purely to provide an income solution rather than a, a wider solution, I think, is probably much too limited. You may disagree, Valtra, but that, for me, is uh, one of the issues about UBI. Sort of incomplete. As, as we start to wind up, I want to give each of the members of the panel a chance to sound off about anything that... Either they wish they had said or they should have said. Mm. Or, or not. <laughs> I've done my sounding off. Mm-hmm. <laughs> ah, yeah. sorry, thank you. Yes, the producers, of course, apologies. Those of you who made this splendid video, are there any responses that uh, you would like to make? I do have a question, actually. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> I think you you should have your question. Yeah. Right. I I had a question uh, about the UBI, uh, which I was presenting, um, about the financing method that we proposed. I'd like 
you to shortly go more into detail about it, about how to create a sovereign fund. Mm. Uh, because uh, most countries are not like Norway and don't have that. But um, as if we listen to Piketty or to Oxfam report, we know that income is con uh, wealth is concentrating, and very, very little people, like around like 60 people, have as much wealth as 3.5 billion people. So there is a big pile of money somewhere in the hands of very few people. If we grab that somehow with, inher with inheritance tax, for example, if when they die, uh, like it, it's a thing. And uh, we pull that in, in a fund and create a sovereign fund to fund UBI. What, what's your feeling about this? It might be very uh, abstract and, and not realistic, but still, like, what's your feeling on it? Any other points that the yeah, any of the producers want to make? Um, I was working on the personal work accounts, and I thought it was really interesting what you, was, what you were mentioning because we also were discussing these issues of dualization and then how far maybe people who, are more, who have more resources in the first place make also more use of the money. But I think it's interesting um, also when we talked to Julien Legrand um, about the um, baby bonds idea where he was mentioning that in that case, for example, especially people who were disadvantaged made, made use of the money. Um, and I think in general you're right that there need to be restrictions and there need to be oversight. Um, and we were also looking at a French example, the Comte d'Activité, where also kind of like a work account was introduced in France. Um, and of course, there are like always advantages and disadvantages of a policy. But I think in general, the idea that you give people a certain amount of money where they can retrain, but also maybe found a company which is maybe connected to green energy or to like the green economy, um, or maybe give people like also people can use the money to um, to take care of their children or to take care of their relatives. I think it's like an interesting idea to 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 look at and. Um, um, I just wanted to mention that we were also discussing the pros and cons, but I think, um, yeah, also when looking at other policy ideas which have been implemented, that it might actually be a chance to, to react to, more, to, to the demand for more flexibility in, in, in the workplace. Yeah. Last, last one, and then we'll... Um, I was working on maybe 5% of all the policies because I was filming with everyone. <laughs> so, uh, but uh, I want to add a bit on cooperative housing because you were talking about how it could be implemented in the UK and it would be a bit more complicated and difficult because of planning and maybe you know, social diversity in the UK. What happened with Les Grands Voisins in Paris is that it was um, built in the 14th arrondissement, which is quite a bourgeois society, if one could say that about that area. But the thing is, it, it gathered everyone in that community. I mean, the students from the elite schools went there to have a drink at the end. You'd have the families that would go there in the afternoon for coffee and drinks. You'd have the refugees that were working. You'd have people giving yoga lessons, you know, selling, give, making workshops for everything. So it was a huge community that really evolved in, what, two, three years, I think. And in that sense, it doesn't need to be in the poor suburbs of London or, you know, the, the, the dodgy parts of Birmingham. It needs to be more inside the cent like the centre of the cities. It needs to include everyone, and it does include everyone. And I think that was a really good part of what we saw in Paris. I'm pretty sure it could be implemented in the UK in that sense. Thank you. Right. Last responses from the panel. 
I'll just say one thing about UBI, your point about can we tax the 60 richest people in the world? Um, none of them are tax resident in the UK, I suspect. So that's a fat, fat lot of good for us. You can have a fantastic SWF in Cayman, Cayman Islands, probably, but not. Uh, but, but there is a serious point here, which is, I mean, I'm not into expropriation of the wealthy for the sake of it, but, but you, want, you want an asset where there is an injustice that not enough tax is paid on it, where people are earning serious amounts of money from it, which is sticky, which means it doesn't, you can't move it and therefore evade tax easily. And magically, it turns out there is one of those in Britain, which is housing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. When we, so when, we, when I worked for Ed Miliband, we, we, we had this mansion tax idea, which is every house over £2 million will be taxed. It was very, very popular with Labour people and very unpopular with Labour opponents. Um, turns out most of the houses in Britain at that time who were worth over £2 million were in two boroughs of London alone, Kensington and Chelsea and Westminster. And something like, it's difficult to know because the data's a bit rough, but something like 40% of these houses weren't just owned by people who weren't resident in the UK, but weren't even lived in, not even rented out. Why? Because it's 20% a year guaranteed income. You can't get it on the stock market. You can't get that in a bank account. It's just earning money. And yet it's also dead housing, right, from a residence point. Now, that's not going to solve your self-sovereign wealth fund problem, but I think that's the sort of... That's an area where there is a justification, economic justification, and a kind of social justice justification for accessing wealth that is not productively being used, which could at least provide something for it. I think you've got to start there, somewhere like that, in my view. I agree with that. (laughs) (laughs) But I think think the the, the thing that has been coming up again and again and again is tax and social insurance as the sort of glue that could stick some of these policies to practicality. Um. Yeah, I think that's it. I think we need to start thinking perhaps more boldly as you're doing in terms of different forms of taxation. I think it part of probably sits in a wider agenda. Of, you know, you, we really need to think more clearly about what our actual aims are and think in the long term. Don't just tax something in the short term. Actually, think, is this sustainable over time? Um, and yeah, well done. It was really great. Yeah, well done. Um, it's fantastic. Final thought, at the moment you pay national insurance contributions only up to some amount. Abolish the upper earnings limit. It's a small change, it would be politically difficult, but it's very much in the spirit of what people have been talking about this afternoon. So can I thank and congratulate the presenters. That was, that was terrifically thought-provoking. <laughs>